Well, we've got a lot of people here today who um, who weren't here last week, so we should probably do a, a little bit of a, a brief rundown of what we covered last week because this is really part two of uh, of the message that we gave um, that we did last week: um, cure for selfish ambition, the cure for selfish ambition. Last week we talked about the way that we are all uh, created in Christ Jesus to serve the body of Christ, to serve people in different ways, depending on how. Uh, the Holy Spirit has gifted us. And we saw, of course, that the greatest example of service was set by Jesus himself. And, you know, that, that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind, that Jesus is the one who set the example for us to follow. Not that we need to go to a cross necessarily the, the way he did, not, not doing literally the same thing he did, but the example of service that he set is the example that we should want to follow. And that's really important because the truth is that people have a tendency to imitate the people or the things that they worship or admire. For example, any of you guys ever watch basketball, NBA? Any of you guys know who Kobe Bryant is? Yeah, when I watch Kobe Bryant, I can tell that he grew up admiring somebody, maybe idolizing, I don't want to say idolizing in a negative way, but you know, somebody that he greatly held in esteem was Michael Jordan. And you can tell because sometimes Kobe will hit a fadeaway jumper or he'll drive the lane and it's like, wow, that, ta- that just took me back 25 years to when Michael Jordan used to do the exact same thing, like almost step by step. It almost looks exactly the same. So, uh, so obviously he grew up and he'll admit it, he grew up watching and imitating Michael Jordan. Why? Because he admired Michael Jordan. Uh, See, people have this tendency to become like or to imitate uh, whatever they worship or admire. And as I look back in my own life, I can see times and and phases where I've done the same thing. And uh, kind of the the most obvious one to me, the first thing that popped into my mind was when I was in high school, uh, my, my high school soccer coach uh, was, was a former Marine, and he was a nice enough guy off the field, um, but man, he was, he was straightforward and to the point about things. He didn't beat around the bush about anything. If you were playing bad, he would get in your face and tell you you were playing bad. Um, he coached exactly how you might expect a former Marine uh, to coach. Uh, the guy was kind of like a drill sergeant in a way. So, um, you know, I, I, I worked really hard um, to earn his respect, you know, he, he seemed like a guy whose respect would be hard to earn, and I worked really, really hard to earn his respect, and when I finally got it, I, I really admired him a lot, and I thought, you know, at the time, wow, this, I would love to become, you know, kind of like this guy, uh, and because I held him in such high esteem, you know, I, I wanted to be like him, and so when I got to college, um, I, I remember being in the middle of a soccer game, and making a comment to one of my fellow teammates that my coach in high school had made to me, and it almost started a fist fight. Uh, it was not good, so I, you know, I learned my lesson there. Be careful who you want to become like. And parents, parents, know, you need to know that this principle works exactly like this with your kids as well. The more that they admire you, the more they will want to become like you, and conversely, the less they admire you, the less... They will want to be like you, although there's a good possibility, a very strong possibility, I'd say, that they will reflect many of your qualities as they grow older, nevertheless. So given the principle that we resemble whatever we respect or whatever we revere, if we're worshiping Jesus, if we're worshiping the Lord, the way that we should be, man, it it should make a whole lot of difference. And you know, the the disciples, you know, they, they haven't quite gotten there yet. 
They're not quite there. I mean, they're following Jesus. I think they hold him in somewhat high esteem. They're almost there, but not quite. And of course, we know historically that throughout their lives, they would increasingly grow and grow and continue to resemble him, reflect his nature more and more, having the same ambition to serve that he had. But the, the principle here is that instead of demanding service from others, if we're being like Jesus, we'll be ambitious to serve others because that's what Jesus came to do. Now, we saw in our previous passage, it was almost a comical passage, it really is, um, that James and John had approached Jesus on the road to Jericho, asking that each of them would be given this high honor of being seated, one on the left and one on the right of Jesus, when he entered his kingdom in glory as they judged the nation of Israel. Now, to refresh the memories of, of those of us who were here last week, um, you know, they had approached Jesus by saying, we want you to do whatever we tell you to do. Wow, that, that's, that's audacious. And of course, Jesus surpri- uh, responded in a kind of surprising way, uh, not with a harsh rebuke, not with a correction, as, as you know, I may have answered when I think about it, but simply by asking, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And it's important that we remember those words as we enter into our passage today. Um, and we'll get to that when, when we get there, but you'll see why. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And of course, the response of the disciples, you know, the other 10 who watched all of this transpiring, who watched this conversation, they were outraged. They were, they were incensed. They were furious with James and John, uh, not so much because they'd asked for these seats of honor, but because they wanted those seats of honor as well. And James and John had beat them to the punch. And so Jesus' response was basically to pull all the disciples together, pull them all aside, and tell them that they are acting the way that the world acts, but that's not the way things work in the kingdom. That's the gist of what Jesus said in response. He said, It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Slave of all. That's from verses 43 and 44. Now, there's a very important principle in here, and that is that in the world's eyes, the basis for honor and respect is based in in position and power that a person has. But if the kingdom, and of course that includes the church, the local church, all followers of Jesus, if the, if the kingdom is going to be the opposite of the world, that doesn't mean that people won't view us as having honor or respect. It doesn't even mean that they won't view us as having authority. All it means is that the basis is completely different. It means that the basis of our honor and respect is different. Rather than being power or prestige or position, the basis of honor and respect in the kingdom is service. I mean, that's, that's why Protestantism started to begin with. That's why it rejects the idea of there being a person other than Jesus who has authority over the whole church, right? Because that one person, uh, you know, that's, that's not the way that Jesus structured his church. Uh, the whole Reformation stemmed from a consensus among many that the people who were in positions of honor and respect in the church uh, had kind of been juiced in, as, as we'd say in Vegas. You know, they had a friend who got them in or, or whatever, they, they were, and they were abusing their positions. They weren't serving. Instead, they were demanding that they would be served by the people. And the thing that we need to understand, and this is important, this is, this is very important, 
The thing we need to understand is that when we serve people, something truly amazing happens. Maybe you don't even expect it. Maybe it's not your motivation. Hopefully it's not your motivation. But that person, the more and more you serve them, the more they will view you with honor and respect. They will come to value you. They'll come to value your opinions. They'll come to value your advice. They'll come to value your insight. Not because you forced those things on them, but because you are willing to serve them. Not because you have a title before your name, but because you are willing to invest in their lives. And it's something that happens naturally when you dedicate yourselves to serving others. Something inside of them changes. If you've seen the movie Driving Miss Daisy, and I know that for those of you who are under 25, that was maybe a little bit before your time, but uh, those of you who are older than 25, you probably saw Driving Miss Daisy, movie of the year, great movie, but that's a great illustration of this principle. You know, at the beginning of the movie, Miss Daisy gets this, this servant, and she can't stand him. And she treats him like, like garbage, honestly. She's mean to him, she's ruthless to him, but he invests in serving her no matter what. And he stands by her no matter what. And throughout the years, he's serving her, serving her, serving her. And throughout the years, the more he serves her, the greater she respects him. And so by the end of the movie, uh, she views him as her equal. They're, they're friends. See, the world is full of, of counterfeit honor and respect because it's based on position and things like that. But when it comes to true honor and respect, it's got to be earned. It's got to be earned. And so, you know, people fake it, but don't think, don't, don't think they keep faking it when you're not watching. You know, that's, that's the way the world works. But I remember, you know, being in the, in, the, uh, in the pits of the casinos in Las Vegas, you know, the boss walks in, boy, you are friendly as can be. He walks out, oh man, I can't stand that guy. You know, that, that's the way that the world works. That's counterfeit honor and respect. Now, it's important that we keep all this fresh in our minds because immediately after this discussion that Jesus has with the disciples, immediately after James and John say, we want you to do whatever we, want you to, uh, whatever we tell you to do, uh, Mark gives us a passage that is actually going to parallel that passage. You might never have even realized it as you, you know, if you've ever studied this passage before, uh, but think about it. Every time Jesus teaches a really important principle, it gets illustrated in a story. There's what you would call an object lesson, basically. And, you know, that's why we, you know, we, we learn a lot from seeing something play out. That's why TV can influence our behaviors the way that it does. When we see something play out, it has a deeper impact on us. So this is actually going to be an object lesson that we're about to get to. So we pick it up in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, where we read, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now, if you'll notice, Mark just skips right over all of Jericho in less than a breath. They came into Jericho, boom, they left Jericho. And you you might think at first glance that there was nothing that happened in Jericho, that he just kind of went in and out of Jericho. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's where they're going. They, they were headed toward Jericho, and it's a nice place to probably stay a couple days. Um, but we see that there are all these people behind him. So he was obviously there for some time, but we don't understand exactly maybe why they're all following him. If he just went in and out, why would all of these other people uh, start gathering? Well, you know, there, were some, there was a large crowd that was following him into Jericho, but what we have here is kind of a snowball effect. It's, it's bigger than it was before. Now, one of the greatest stories, in my opinion, one of the greatest stories in all of Scripture happened in Jericho, and that is when Jesus has this encounter with a, a short man 
named Zacchaeus, who's so short that he climbs up a tree so that he can see and hear Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to come eat at your house tonight. And Zacchaeus' life is totally transformed. And this is something that, that happened in the city of Jericho, but Mark just breezes right over it. So there were some really important events, very significant events that took place in Jericho, and Mark just skips right over it and brings us to an encounter that Jesus has where he heals a blind man, even though, and this is kind of odd, think about it, Jesus has already healed blind people in the book of Mark. So we already know that he has the power and he has the authority to do it, but Mark's going to give us another instance of him doing that. Why does Mark skip all these great things in Jericho to tell us about this encounter with Bartimaeus? It's because he's going to give us an encounter which corresponds and parallels the previous passage, which started with James and John coming to Jesus, asking for positions of honor and respect. And how exactly it corresponds is what we'll, we'll see as the story unfolds. So after telling us that Jesus uh, entered the city and left the city of Jericho with a large crowd, Mark tells us about this man named Bartimaeus the son of Timaeus, who was sitting on the side of the road at the edge of town. Now, what's very interesting here is the fact that this man, Bartimaeus, is identified in a very redundant, repetitive, superfluous... You get the point. I'm being redundant on purpose. He's identified in a very redundant way. He's called Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. But if you know what Bar-Timaeus means... It means the son of Timaeus. So he identifies him as the son of Timaeus, the son of Timaeus. So you would think that because there's this repetition here, there's something that Mark wants us to notice, something that he doesn't want us to miss. So additionally, Mark has has singled out Bartimaeus, by the way. Uh, Bartimaeus is not the only blind beggar there. Uh, In fact, Matthew tells us that there were two blind men there, and he he doesn't give us a name. Uh, But Mark doesn't say a single thing about this second blind beggar. He doesn't mention him. You you wouldn't even know that he was there if he didn't cross-reference it with Matthew's account. So obviously, Mark wants us to see something significant about Bartimaeus. Wouldn't you agree? You guys think? Okay. So if we dig a little bit deeper, what we find is that the Greek word Timaeus, the Greek name Timaeus, uh, the root of that means honor. Timae means honor. And so this blind beggar's name means son of honor. Now wait, what was it that James and John were asking from Jesus? Honor, weren't they? Isn't that that basically what their request amounted to? They were asking for honor. Give us these thrones of greatest honor from which to judge, Jesus. And that's exactly what their request amounted to. And so you would think that God must have set up this encounter from all of eternity where Jesus would encounter the Son of Honor for a really good reason, to show us something. You would call this a divine appointment. And the Son of Honor is a blind man who begs at the side of the road, which is a lowly position at best. And not only that, but the fact that he's physically blind parallels the spiritual blindness of James and John. The spiritual blindness parallels their, or his, his uh, physical blindness parallels their spiritual blindness. They'd wanted these positions of honor, but they were blind to the things that that would entail, to the things that that would include. They didn't know exactly what they were asking for. And Jesus specifically told them, you don't know what you're asking for. They were spiritually 
blind by ambition, by a desire for honor. You don't know what you're asking for. They were in blindness and they didn't even know it. And here's Bartimaeus, who's very well of the fact of the condition that he's in. He's very well of fact, uh, very well aware of the fact that he's blind. Now the parallels don't stop here, however. Let's continue. Verse 47. When he heard, when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So Bartimaeus begins his plea with just this simple request, begging for mercy. Now compare that with how James and John approached Jesus, telling him, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want you to do. Whatever we ask you to do, Jesus, give us a blank check. There's a huge difference, isn't there? You can see their hearts are in totally different places. Bartimaeus is coming from a much, much more humble mindset than either James or John. He's not not asking for Jesus to do something outrageous. He's not even asking for for personal promotion or, or, uh, or honor. He's just asking for mercy. Now, is he ambitious? You know, one of the things that we pointed out last week was that it's good to be ambitious when that ambition is harnessed for the kingdom. So was he ambitious? Yeah, Bartimaeus was pretty ambitious, I'd say. You know, he's a, he's a guy who realizes that he's in a situation, a bad situation, a situation that he wants some relief from. And so when word spreads that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, he cries out above the crowd. Now, that's not an easy thing to do when you've got a crowd, to be the one voice that rises right above everybody. That definitely takes some ambition. He is determined to have Jesus hear his plea for mercy. And little did James or John realize that down the line, they'd be put into a situation where anybody would be begging for mercy as well. But they didn't realize it. They were blind to it. Now, the reaction of those who are following Jesus, which presumably includes the disciples, is very interesting. Verse 48, many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Wow. So Jesus gets done with this conversation with with the disciples and the next thing that they, you know, this, this conversation where he's telling them, hey, you guys need to humble yourselves. You need to be the slave of all if you want to be the greatest. You know, here's how you serve people. And the next thing that they have to say is, shut up over there. <laughs> you know, the, the, in, in our culture, when, we're, when we sternly tell somebody to be quiet, we don't say, excuse me, could you keep it down just a little bit? We say, shut up. <laughs> and so that's what they're doing. They're, shut up. Let Jesus talk. Seriously? After this conversation that Jesus just had with them? So they not only try to quiet Bartimaeus, but they do so sternly. And here, you know, this reminds me of the, the disciples trying to prevent the children from coming to Jesus. They're, they're basically doing the same thing. Here they have this amazing chance to serve someone who is in desperate need, and they're still too blind to recognize the opportunity. They're still so spiritually blind They can't see the forest for the trees. And so what does Bartimaeus do? He raises his voice, crying out even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And it's interesting that Mark actually includes uh, the title Son of David um, that that Jesus is addressed by 
here. Usually Matthew is the only one of the, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Usually Matthew is the only one that would include uh, a title that stems from the Jewish worldview. He's addressing Jesus as the son of David. And by doing that, he's making his message very clear. He's saying, I know exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior, the Healer, the Provider. Jesus is the one true God who holds all of eternity in His hands. And isn't it ironic that of all people, it's the blind man who can see clearly who Jesus is. Hmm. The sad reality is that there are a lot more people who come to Jesus by saying, Jesus, I I want you to be whatever I want you to be. I want you to do whatever I want you to do. Then there are people who come to him simply saying, Jesus, please have mercy on me. You know, for me, though, when I I read this, man, I I want the boldness that Bartimaeus has. I want the, the courage that he has. What a great example of ambitious faith I mean, he's, he's just as ambitious as the woman that we saw back in chapter 5, the hemorrhaging woman. She'd had this, this bleeding problem for 12 years, and she knows that she's not supposed to touch anybody because by doing that, she makes them unclean. But she thinks to herself, you know, if only I touch the edge of Jesus' garment, I know that he'll make me well. That was really bold. She, she did it. He called her out on it. He identified her and, and basically pointed out her great faith for everybody. And Bartimaeus is doing the same thing. He can't physically see Jesus, though. The woman could. She could see Jesus, and then she, so she could go and find him. But this man, this man can't. Bartimaeus can't. So what does he do? He uses every means that he does have at his disposal to get to Jesus. And it's tragic that the disciples didn't recognize this as a prime opportunity to serve someone who desperately needed it, but their failure, this is great, This is great. Their failure doesn't prevent Jesus from acting out in compassion. Verses 49 and 50. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage. Stand up. He's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. So the first thing you guys see here is probably the first thing I see, the change in the attitude of the, the people. Man, it goes from shut up to come on, man, he's calling you. Get up, you can do it. They go from being really tr- trying, trying to be an obstacle for him getting to Jesus to being an encouragement to him coming to Jesus. And look at the joy of Bartimaeus. I mean, I I just see him overflowing with joy. I I think he can't miss it here. He doesn't lay his cloak down nicely, you know, and if it's something that you have to lay on, and that that was usually what beggars would do. They'd use their cloak kind of as as a bed, too, and also to keep them warm. He doesn't lay it down nicely. He throws it. He jumps up, and he comes to Jesus. He's not going to allow this opportunity to beg for mercy to pass. And so at this point, we can assume that somebody probably led him over to Jesus. Now that they're his friends, <laughs> yeah, really. Now that they're his friends, uh, we can assume that one of them, you know, guided him over to Jesus. But, you know, the thing that, that gets us here, the thing that gets me anyway, is the persistence of Bartimaeus. I mean, he's got the deck 
stacked against him. The odds are totally against him. He's blind. He can't see where Jesus is. He gets rebuked for, uh, for, for trying to cry out for mercy from Jesus, and he continues anyway. He refuses to let anything get in his way of coming to Jesus. You know why most people don't come to Jesus? It's because they don't realize how desperate their situation is. They don't realize how badly they need him. You know, and Bartimaeus here, he's physically blind, but he has got 20-20 vision with his spiritual eyes. He, he sees exactly who Jesus is. And for that reason, because he knows who Jesus is, he's willing to leave everything behind. So he throws his cloak to the side. He jumps up, which I think for a blind person would be kind of scary. You know, you don't, you don't know. There might be something above you. I, you know, I don't know. He does all that, and he just goes to Jesus. And look at what Jesus says to Bartimaeus. Verse 51, and answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. We've seen those words before, haven't we? What can I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Yeah, that's the same thing that Jesus said to James and John in the previous passage. And that marks another parallel with that passage. So we see that this is, this is another example of this being an illustration of what we saw in the previous passage. And Mark wants to make sure, it, including these words, you can't miss it. There, there's no mistake about it. Mark wants to make sure that we catch that this is an illustration of that previous passage. But the next thing that jumps out at me is that it's a little bit strange, maybe, that Jesus would be asking a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? The disciples, you know, uh, they, they needed to see something. And Jesus is trying to make it, he, he says these words, what do you want me to do for you? Because he wants to make it clear, hey guys, I'm, I'm teaching you something that's just an extension of what I just taught you. The disciples were spiritually blind, a bit too ambitious, or their, their ambition wasn't harnessed. Uh, if you ask me, uh, this man is physically blind, but he's not asking for anything outrageous or unreasonable. And we should note that he hasn't always been blind. He, he hasn't always been blind. Look very carefully at what he says. He says, I want to regain my sight. In other words, there, there was a time in his life when he was able to see who knows how long ago? Who, who knows how long it's been since he's been able to see? And at some point, he lost it. Maybe there was an accident. Maybe he got some kind of disease. You know, we, we don't know exactly, but there was some point in his life where he lost his vision. He lost his physical sight. And so that's what he's asking for. He wants his physical sight back. And we need to, we need to remember that in that culture, blindness was commonly seen um, by, the, by the culture as being a consequence or a result of sin. I mean, we, we all know the story of when, you know, in the, in the book of John, when Jesus and the disciples come upon a blind man, and the disciples, the first question they ask is, you know, is he like this because of his sin or the sin of his parents? You know, it was obviously a consequence of somebody's sin, you know, because that's what the culture believed at the time. And it's likely that even the blind believed that they were blind as a result of punishment, some, as, a, as a punishment for a sin that either they or their parents had committed. And so when Bartimaeus asks for his sight back, he's asking for much more than just to get his sight back. 
He's asking to be forgiven. He's asking to be forgiven of whatever sin he may have, co- he may have committed that caused him to be blind or whatever sin his parents may have committed that caused him to be blind. And of course, we know that that's not the case. We, there's, nothing, there's no biblical support for that at all. We'd all be blind if, uh, if that were the case. But we, we do know that blindness is part of the curse of sin, of humanity in general. It's undoubtedly a consequence of the fall from the Garden of Eden, but it's not a consequence of a specific sin. In fact, and this is going to challenge you guys, in fact, maybe God allowed him to be blinded just so that this story could transpire. Maybe. Jesus encounters the Son of Honor right after James and John were asking for honor. And was he honored? Well, his name is recorded in Scripture, and his story is an example of what I would consider to be flawless faith. Flawless, audacious faith. And so I'd say, yeah, he he was honored. I mean, here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about what great faith this man named Bartimaeus had. Now, I don't know about you, but if they were talking about how great my faith was in year 4,000-something, I'd feel pretty honored. So, yeah, he he got honor, but, I mean, he's also talking face-to-face with Jesus. He's, He's honored. It's an honor. I mean, these are things that are probably greater honors than any of us have ever imagined. So, the Son of Honor was honored. But more importantly, more importantly, God gets glorified. So, here's a question for you, just just to chew on. This is going to challenge you, but it's something you got to chew on. Would you be willing to endure several years of physical blindness in order for God to be glorified? Mm. That's a tough question. Is his glory that important in your life that you would willingly give that much of yourself for a cause that is so much greater than any cause you've ever stood for? Would you do it? Just chew on it. Jeremy Riddle, one of the great Christian singers and songwriters of our times, he said this. He said, sacrificing for something greater than yourself is a lost art. And you know what? I, I, hope, I hope that's not true with us. I hope it's not true with me. I hope that we'd all take the attitude that we'd be willing to do whatever God wanted us to do or whatever he wanted to put us through in order to bring glory to God. I hope I would. I hope you would too. The truth is that when the hardest storms of life hit us, whether it's blindness, whether it's the death of a loved one, you know, it's in those times that we learn the most about God. It's in those times where we develop this this reliance on God, unlike any other time, unlike when times are good or when when everything's going our way. You know, it's no coincidence that the Psalms are filled with all of these cries and pleas for God to step in and help. But at the same time, if you want to learn about God's attributes, look no further than the Psalms. You can figure everything out about God that you need to know in the Psalms. And yet the Psalms are filled with guys who are going through turmoil. That's not a coincidence. Because it's in those times that we learn the most about God. It's in those times when we take shelter in Him, when we hit rock bottom and have nothing else to turn to, that we learn the most about God. And here's Bartimaeus in that boat, sitting squarely in that boat. He's crying out for help. 
But it's obvious that in the midst of his horrible circumstances, being physically blind in that culture would have, and, and having to beg would have been horrible circumstances, it's obvious that in the midst of that situation, he's overflowing with faith and he loves the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, it's not despite his circumstances. Maybe it's because of them. I mean, how else would you interpret Romans 8.28? Take Romans 8.28 and apply it to Bartimaeus. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And here's Bartimaeus. He loves God. And all things work together for the good of those who love God. So maybe the reason Bartimaeus loves God, maybe the reason that his faith is so great is because he's been given this cup. He's been given this circumstance in life. And look at this verb that pertains to God. Causes. God causes all things to work together. And when it's something as, as awful, if I, if I can use that word, if it's something like physical blindness, you know, that's a hard pill for us to swallow. It really is. But maybe it was his blindness that caused him to see so clearly and to consequently love God as much as he did. Verse 52. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Now Matthew actually gives us a detail that neither Mark nor Luke gives us. He tells us that Jesus reached out and touched the eyes of Bartimaeus and this other blind man. But he, he clearly says, it is your faith that's made you well. It's, it's not the touch. He does touch him, but that's not what heals him. It's his faith that heals him. And it wasn't gradual. It was instant. All of a sudden, maybe it was a, he just blinked and boom, the world is alive. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been blind for two days, if I had been blind for two years, if I had been blind for 20 years, there are a lot of things I'd want to go see. There are a lot of things I'd, I'd want to go do that, I, you know, that you can't do when you're blind. It would be tempting to go off and, and see and do all those things. But Bartimaeus' response to being healed is to follow Jesus. Is to follow Jesus as Jesus and the disciples continue on their way to Jerusalem. And I love the way that Luke concludes this passage. Luke chapter 18, verse 43. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So regaining his sight obviously didn't cause Bartimaeus to become spiritually blind. He responds by glorifying God. And when the crowd sees exactly what Jesus has done for this guy, maybe they have a better idea of who he is too. And so they start praising God too. And that's what's supposed to happen when people see that we've been delivered from some sort of an affliction. When we've gone through the storms of hardships and we're alive to tell the story, people should see the glory of God as it's played out in our lives. So why has Mark even given us this parallel passage? I mean, one right after the other, making it very clear that this is an illustration of the principle that we just got. 
See, I think this was a, a divine appointment, what you'd call a divine appointment that was given to tell us something really important. It's, it's something that's really important for us to realize. It's basically Jesus' way of saying, you know, if you want to ask for the blessings of God, if you want to ask for the good things from God, you might first want to ask for wisdom regarding what all is involved. And when you're in a difficult situation, ask for insight that God may show you things about yourself that need to be dealt with, things that maybe you didn't realize before. And if you look at the request that Bartimaeus has made and you compare it with the request that James and John had made, we should immediately notice that the request of Bartimaeus is something that enables him, that helps him to follow Jesus, whereas what James and John asked for ultimately would have hindered their walk with Jesus. So think about your your deepest desires, the desires of, of your heart. If Jesus came to you and said, what do you want me to do for you? Would you ask for something that would help your walk with him? Or something that would hinder your walk with him? I mean, this is between you and the Lord, but how you answer this question is a pretty strong indication of your desire to be serious about discipleship, serious about following Jesus. And you know, as, as I look back on my life, I now, you know, it, it's always 2020 in hindsight, right? I can, I can look back now, and I, I remember the times when I thought, God, why are you putting me through this? Why me? Why, why do I have to go through this? And I can now understand the purposes of the cups that I was forced to drink, the baptisms that I was forced to be baptized with. I understand why I had to go through some incredibly difficult situations in life because in the midst of those hardships, what God did is he shone his light into the dark corners of my heart where darkness and evil beyond my wildest imagination still resided. He showed me, man, there are some evil, evil desires still in your heart. And it was only through these difficult situations that I even became aware of them because as soon as I was put into these difficult situations, boom, it came to the top. Like a scientist flicking a beaker and all of a sudden it comes to the top. That's exactly what happens in our lives. And believe me, that some of the situations that I've been put into, some of the situations that God has led me through, uh, have forced my spiritual eyes to either be wide open or for me to completely shut them. You know, I've, I've been in those situations where I've been forced to deal with things that, were, that seemed impossible. And the more God showed me the incredible darkness and evil in, in my own heart, and I'm just being honest with you guys, this is, this is what I've seen. The more he showed me those things, the more I understood the greatness of his compassion, the, the power of his love, the power of his cleansing in my life, the, the activity of God in my life. If he didn't love me, he wouldn't want me to see these things and deal with them. We never understand the purposes of wandering in the wilderness while we're still in the wilderness. Not like we do in, in hindsight. But God's good. God's good. And he uses the most trying the most difficult situations of our lives to show us the areas in which we need to grow if we're going to become like Jesus. And that's the greatest good. Becoming like Jesus is the greatest good. And that's the goal. 
to become more like Jesus, to worship him alone, to admire him above and beyond anything or everyone else, and to therefore reflect more and more, more and more his holy and righteous character. Becoming like Jesus is not easy, but it's the greatest good. It's the greatest good, and that's his promise. That's Romans 8, 28. He will work all things, all things, no exceptions, all things to the good of those who love him because he is the cure for selfish ambition. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this illustrated lesson, for the things that it teaches us about ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you would shine the light into the darkest corners of our hearts, that you would examine us, that you would show us what's in there, what you see. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us. And Lord, we, we just pray that you would work all things. We know that you will for, your, for our good, and that is for your glory as we become more like your Son. God, we have a tendency, as you know, to avoid hard situations, and sometimes we fight it all the way through. But I pray, God, that you would show us each in the rearview mirror of our lives the way that you've worked us gently, lovingly, sometimes forcefully, to become more like Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would continue that work in us. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.